You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Can you imagine being in your 20s, walking into the office of the CEO of DC Comics and saying, and you don't have any money, you just love Batman. So you say, I want to buy the rights to make Batman into a movie forever. That's what Michael Uslan did. And even the CEO of DC Comics tried to talk him out of it, but they negotiated a deal. And again, Michael Uslan, through his passion and perseverance, figured out how to raise the money. And it took him 10 years of rejections by every movie studio. And he has hilarious stories about his rejections until he finally made the first Batman. And now the most recent Batman, which he's still the executive producer of, he owns the rights to Batman forever. The first weekend in the box office did 250 million. He writes all these stories and so much more in his book just came out, Batman's Batman, a memoir from Hollywood, Land of Bilk and Money by Michael Uslan. It just came out and it's a memoir of his Hollywood experiences. He also wrote an earlier book, The Boy Who Loved Batman, which is almost, I feel like, a love letter to the comic book industry. Batman's Batman also just came out in audio on Audible. And he also wrote a novel about Batman called Detective Number 27, which is a riveting read and I'd highly encourage anyone to get it and read it. But anyway, Batman's Batman, Detective Number 27, The Boy Who Loved Batman. So first off, Michael, you're like part of my childhood practically. Like there's not that many movies where I remember like the day, the movie, and then afterwards, but Batman in 1989, when it came out, I like literally remember talking about it with my friends afterwards, you know, in the parking lot outside the theater and then the next day and so on. So thank you for bringing Batman back into my life after I was a huge comic book fan all throughout my childhood. I so appreciate that, James. I have to tell you that one of the most touching uh, parts of this whole journey for me is, and it, it's just happened again recently with the opening of the new picture. I get emails from people that said, um, Mr. Uslan, uh, in 1989, I was six years old and I went to see Batman with my dad and my grandpa and um, they're not here anymore. 
but I have that memory that I will never, ever lose. And I thank you for it. And it's like, oh my God, you know, um, it puts everything in perspective. That's so interesting on, on a couple of different levels. One is it's really great to have that experience of getting that kind of letter, but this touches on your points that you've made in, in the past about superheroes being our modern day mythology, our modern day pantheon. And mythology doesn't just last for a generation, it lasts for hundreds of years. And you know, that's, that's what's happening now with superheroes. I, I totally agree with that. Um, I had um, the opportunity to remind Stan Lee before he passed that what he has created going forward here puts him in a class with Walt Disney and with Homer uh, and, and Aesop. Not, not Homer Simpson, but Homer. Not Homer not the, yeah, the other Homer, the other yeah. Homer. Um, and, uh, and it really is true. Uh, you know, when I originally pitched my college course, when I proposed my, what would be the first ever accredited college course on comic books, I said my theory was the ancient gods of Greece, Rome, and Egypt all still exist, except today they wear spandex and capes. And I, I said to the dean, the Greeks called them Hermes, the Romans called them Mercury, I call them the Flash. Uh, the Greeks called them Poseidon, the Romans called him Neptune, I call him Aquaman, and that sold the course for me. Well, I also like um, your story about the, the so the dean, you were pitching the dean on doing this course, and the dean was, you know, you're going to do a course about the funny papers at my <laughs> university. And and then you asked him to describe the story of Moses. And then you asked him to describe the story of Superman. And it was the same story, basically. It was exactly the same story. And he stopped short. And as I describe in my book, he stared at me for an eternity and then said, your course is accredited. And it was the Superman Moses thing that got the thing across the point. Yeah. So what did you teach in the course? And we'll, then we'll get, you, you wrote Batman's Batman. I'll talk all about this in the intro and we'll, we'll talk about everything. But I just, I was wondering all along, what did you teach in the course? Uh, it was broken up into five academic disciplines. First, that comic books are an art form as indigenous to this country as jazz. Number two, that comic books are contemporary folklore. It's the modern day mythology. Number three, the psychological impact of comic books on its audience. Number four, comic books as literature. And number five was sociologically, comic books have been published every Wednesday since the mid 1930s. They reflect the changing American culture. They are a mirror of our society. Whatever our fads, whatever our style of dress, our slang, our racism, our biases, our prejudices are all reflected in the pages of the comic books over the better part of a century now. And the whole fact that they reflect a changing American culture. And that was the basis. That was how the syllabus was broken up. That reminds me of your initial story, the cross-generational impact. Like, you know, you have the golden age Batman, you have the silver age Batman, you have the Batman from the movies now. Like these characters get reinvented with a largely similar origin story, but brought up to modern day. It's really true. Um, Batman is human. And as a result directly of that, all of us who identify so much with Batman and have since the 1930s get to project ourselves onto Batman, our own thoughts, our own philosophies, and even our own politics onto Batman. Um, like no other character, 
that happens. So you can have completely different iterations and interpretations of Batman from one extreme to the other, whether it's in a comic book, a movie, a cartoon, whatever. And everyone is valid because he is a reflection of us and we identify so strongly with that. And we found it transcends not only borders around the world, it transcends cultures. But you know, what's interesting for me, and maybe it's just a product of my, my age and maybe somebody at a different age would have a different feeling, but when Dark Knight Returns came out and Batman Year One came out, you know, Frank Miller uh, written, and I forget the, the artist now, they were so intense and dark that that really changed Batman for me in some way, which I think many of the movies brought that feeling into those movies as well. It's true, but it was also, it's also generational because remember, it started out by Bill Finger, Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson, very dark uh, before Robin. And then um, editor Julie Schwartz had writer Denny O'Neill and artist Neil Adams return Batman to his darker roots in the 1970s. And that yeah. stuff could get dark. Uh, that was augmented by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers, deeply, darkly romantic version of Batman in the same period. So it's not just about Frank and uh, David Masticelli. It, it, it's, it goes beyond that. And it is generational. Yeah, so interesting. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways, I think Marvel, like take take Daredevil as an example. Daredevil strikes me, and even though he has superpowers, he strikes me as like almost a, 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 a Marvel version of Batman a little bit. Uh, uh, yeah, well, explore that comparison. Because there was like, there's a darkness to it. Like Daredevil lived in Hell's Kitchen. He, he wasn't afraid to go over the edge. There was much more kind of like, low-level crime-related stuff in his in his comic books? Yeah, you can certainly make that argument. You know, he he lost his father, right? I mean, yeah. I mean there's a lot of elements of the story. Murdered. Yeah, Stan, Stan loved to murder relatives. Um, that, that was always one of the things that was percolating. Uncle Ben over in Spider-Man. Um, but I would say you, probably Daredevil, Moon Knight, and little bits of Captain America are probably the closest to um, to Batman uh, over at Marvel. Um, great thing about Marvel uh, and its cinematic universe is how much they owe to Tim Burton, who opened the door for them. Because if you consider the fact that in 1989, when we did our revolutionary first ever dark and serious comic book superhero movie, it was Tim Burton's big idea that broke through all the barriers. And his big idea was simply, if we're going to do this seriously, this can't be about Batman. This movie has to be about Bruce Wayne. That was the big idea. And that was very smart. And that goes along a lot with Stan Lee's kind of aesthetic on characters. Like all of those comics started with, with th those heroes being ordinary people who through interacting with radioactivity, because that was the, the meme of the 60s, became accidental superheroes. It's not only true, it is accurate to the nth degree because Fantastic Four kicked off the Marvel age. And in those first two issues, Stan did not have them in costume. He had no intention of them being in a costume. Uh, it was only the fan reaction that went crazy that they weren't in costumes that it gave them costumes in number three. Uh, but, but that's not where he wanted to go with it. Same way that Brian Singer with the first X-Men movie got them out of the spandex and put them into leather. That was breakthrough. Um, but my contention coming off of Tim Burton is that Marvel's great Iron Man movies should really be called Tony Stark. 
and yeah. their great Spider-Man movies should really be called Peter Parker. And, and Tim opened the door to that. Yeah, so it's so interesting. Why do you think, uh, why do you think Marvel captured the imagination a little bit more than DC in the 60s and 70s? If you will allow me to put on my comic book historian hat, um, I think I can answer that. Um, and it goes back to the roots of the comic book companies. The Marvel Age of Comics was created by one editor who was also the writer. Now, it's true, and I don't want to take anything away from Jack Kirby, my idol Steve Ditko, Don Heck, or any other of the artists who did plotting, who did plotting for all of the books uh, in the Marvel method. But it was one writer, one editor. It was a unified vision. There was unity of tone. There was unity in terms of what who the audience was he was talking to. Um, the rules were consistent. And we all knew as Marvel readers back then what was in outer space. We knew what was under the ocean. So the translation of the Marvel comic book universe to the Marvel cinematic universe was really generally seamless. Now, over at DC, historically, it's a completely different story. From early days, there have been six, eight different editors of DC Comics. And traditionally, they had possession of certain characters, which they operated like a fiefdom. They built a castle and they put up these big walls and moats and, and filled it with alligators because Mort Weisinger had Superman. So he had his own artists, he had his own writers, and nobody was gonna touch Superman but him. Julie Schwartz had Batman and he would, Mort was aiming at eight to 12 year old boys. Julie was aiming at high school, college and up. Um, meanwhile, Murray Boltonoff down the hall had Brave and Bold with Batman in it and was doing completely different stuff with it. The best way I can illuminate this is what, something that happened to me when I was about 10 years old. It was a Wednesday, I go to buy my comics. I buy two DCs that day. One was either Superman or Action and the other one was Showcase Aquaman. And in the Superman story, which I loved at age 10, he goes to Atlantis. It's a place that has a dome underneath the ocean and everybody's a mermaid or a merman and he falls in love with a mermaid. Wow, what a great story. And then I pick up my Aquaman comic and go, well, wait a minute, he's the king of Atlantis and Atlantis doesn't have a dome and there's no mermaids or mermen? What the, fill in the blank. This was from the same comic book company the same week. So to translate that sort of a historic DC comic book universe to the screen is at best challenging. I mean, seriously, James, if you're a filmmaker and you go looking at a comic book and you see a panel of Batman and standing behind him with his arm around him is a green guy from Mars and over his other shoulder is a one inch tall superhero in a floating easy chair. And Batman's talking to a guy who's talking to a fish. All right, this is challenging. So, you know, to me, it's, it's always been about a Gotham City universe, a Metropolis universe, a Paradise Island universe, an Atlantis universe. And, and it's not, it's apples and oranges when you start to compare it to Marvel. Yeah, and particularly when they brought in Wiz Comics, they made Captain Marvel. And yeah, yeah so they, they brought in a whole bunch of new superheroes that were all kind of emulating the DC superheroes. So suddenly you have Captain Marvel versus Superman and, you know, it's hard to know who, who to follow. But by the way, Shazam, when is the sequel coming out? Uh, I love the movie. Apparently very soon. <laughs> okay, good. Um, yeah, you, some of the dates are flipping right now. Are you still and, involved? Um, 
here's the best way I can describe it. I spent approximately 11 years of my life on Shazam. Um, I got the rights to it and I got permission to be the first producer ever to take uh, a DC comic book character out of Warner Brothers and present it to another Warner company. So I set it up at New Line and um, worked on it. So I am the originating producer of Shazam. Uh, I was the one who showed uh, Pete Siegel was on as director and I showed Pete and his producing partner, Michael Ewing, uh, a couple of comic books with Black Adam. I said, this guy looks exactly like The Rock. And Pete said, I know The Rock, let me call him. And so Pete pulled The Rock in and that was the initial plan. And now I'm just, as somebody who was mentored by Otto Binder, who created the Marvel family and Black Adam, uh, as somebody who every week for two years had a correspondence with C.C. Beck, the co-creator of Captain Marvel, I'm just thrilled to see these characters appearing on screen. Yeah, no, I loved it. And I won't give anything away, but I love the last scene of the, of the Shazam movie. So it was great. Uh, so... Batman, you've 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 written the story and and you've talked about the story, but I want to introduce my readers to the story. Can you describe how? Uh, and and by the way, also, I love the 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 breakdown between your two books. Like, there's the uh, the boy who loved Batman is your your first memoir, right? I believe that's the title. And yeah. Batman's Batman. I the, the your first book is almost like a love story to comic books. Like it was really beautiful, just your relationship with comic books and how it evolved uh, through your youth and into adulthood. And then Batman's Batman, which shows how you, you know, as your partner Ben put it, how you became Batman's Batman. You were the the protector of of the story, of the true essence of, of Batman, which which eventually got told in, in the first movie. So these, these books go very well together and I encourage people to, to get both of them. Okay. And, and your story is amazing. Like, again, people get afraid. Like if they, if they say, Oh, I'm going to go buy the rights to, you know, my favorite all time favorite comic book character. Everyone is going to tell you, you can't do that. And somehow you got over that psychology and you did it and it was still hard and you still did it. And it took you 10 years to make the movie and you got rejected everywhere and you still did it. So what, what happened? <laughs> What's um, wrong with you? <laughs> um, you know, when people hear today that I was a kid in my 20s when I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics, and the response is what you would expect. Well, okay, that's impossible. That is inconceivable. And the story makes absolutely no sense, James, unless we put it in the context of its times. Back then, and I'm talking now the 70s, I can tell you this kind of straight from the horse's mouth at the highest levels of Warner Communications. I was told they bought DC Comics to get their hands on Superman because they believed that Superman was the one and only comic book property capable of being made into a blockbuster film, that there was nothing else in the DC library and certainly nothing at Marvel that had any value whatsoever. That was the consensus. Why? because back then the executives and the agents, the people in the industry were people who were adults in the Frederick Wortham seduction of the innocent era in the 1950s, where comic books were called the sole cause of the post-World War II rise of juvenile delinquency in America. Everybody in society looked down their nose at comic books and comic book creators. And um, Warner Communications back then was virtually embarrassed that they owned a comic book company. Which can, is I, can, I, can I ask, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but 
at this time, this was also the peak of comic book sales, really. Like, uh, Action Comics was selling millions of copies a week. And so they must have seen those numbers. They saw numbers regarding Superman. Numbers regarding Batman fell off a cliff when the TV show went off the air. In fact, Detective Comics was slated to be canceled. Wow. That is the namesake title that DC Comics was slated to be canceled if Julie Schwartz couldn't resuscitate it. Um, it, it it's incredible. The whole story, you can't begin to understand it unless you set it back in its time. Well, then and, let me ask you one more question about the time. So in, yeah. the, in the, I feel like the 70s, they used Saturday morning cartoons to basically sanitize culture for kids. And you had Batman and hanging out with Scooby-Doo and the Harlem Globetrotters. So Batman was around during this time post the TV series. Uh, absolutely. And uh, at the same time, we were watching the Marvel cartoon shows like The Thing Meets the Schmoo or The <laughs> Fantastic Four, where they replaced the human torch because they didn't want to inspire kids to set themselves on fire with matches. And it oh, was yeah. Mr. Fantastic, The Thing, The Invisible Girl, and Herbie the Robot. Yeah, I, you know what? I didn't remember that until you just said that. <laughs> Those were the days, my friend. That's yeah. what it was like. So to try to sell a dark and serious version of Batman to these people, what, that's why I got turned down by every studio and every mini major in Hollywood. They told me I was crazy. Okay, but wait, how did you buy the rights? Okay. Um, how do I do the short version of the story? I know. I'm, I'm okay. sorry you have to tell it again, but I, you know, my readers are hearing, I mean, listeners are hearing it. Okay. So I was teaching the world's first college accredited course on comic books at Indiana University, and it got tons of publicity. I get a call from Saul Harrison, vice president of DC Comics. He said, Mr. Uslan, we're watching you on TV on all these talk shows. We're reading about you in newspapers. We think you're a very innovative young man. We'd like to fly to New York and discuss ways we might be able to work together. Duh, you know, geek dream come true. I'm now working for DC Comics. I'm working there summers, and then they put me on retainer when I go back to school because I'm an undergrad. And um, I was lucky enough when I was working there to gain the respect and appreciation of a lot of people who were working there who realized I was a comic book geek. I loved Batman to death, that I was a comic book professor on the college level, a comic book historian. I was always asking everybody questions about the history of, of DC and the industry and the characters. And so when the time came, I went back to Saul Harrison, who had mentored me into the business and was wonderful to me. He was now the president of DC Comics. I said, Saul, I want to buy the rights to Batman and make dark and serious Batman movies and show the world the true Batman, not the one they saw on TV, who was a joke that the world was laughing at. I want to show them the way Bob and Bill created this character in 39 as a creature of the night stalking disturbed villains. Saul Harrison at that moment looked exactly like the poster for Home Alone. It was like, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. And he was very fatherly to me. He says, son, don't you understand that when Batman went off the air on television, this is a quote, James, the brand is as dead as a dodo. He says, Michael, nobody's interested in Batman anymore. I don't want to see you lose all your money. I said, yeah, but Saw, nobody's ever seen a dark and serious comic book superhero movie before. This is going to be like a new form of entertainment. He said, is there any way I can talk you out of this? 
And I said, no. And here's another quote. He said, okay, schmoozel, come on in. And that began a six month negotiation, which I quickly realized I could not do on my own because I was prepared to say yes to anything. So I found myself a Batman partner. Benjamin Melnicker was my dad's age. Ben was a legend in the movie business. He had started at MGM in 1939, not a bad year for MGM, uh, became the executive vice president of MGM. All divisions reported to Ben. And he had put together 2001 A Space Odyssey and Gigi and Dr. Zhivago. And um, after six months, we formed Bat Film Productions. We raised the money privately. And on October 3rd, 1979, bought the rights to Batman. And I put it in my back pocket, quit my job, went out to LA, saying, this could be a piece of cake. Every studio is going to line up at my doorstep and see the potential here for sequels and animation and toys and games. And then I was blown away that I was coldly turned down by everybody in Hollywood, told it was the worst idea they ever heard, and that I was crazy. But some of those reasons were so stupid. Like, and I know you you kind of tell these stories and it's almost like comically stupid, but like tell the Columbia guy. Ugh. I'm sorry, I'm, it's not like you're telling stories on demand here, but I, I, you know, other than reading the book, this is how the listeners are going to hear the story. Yeah, yeah, no, this is fine. This was, this was the last major studio we had. Everybody else had chased me out of their office. And um, I'm pitching my heart out for the dark and serious Batman. And the guy I'm pitching to is a silver-haired, dapper guy. Ben knew him for decades. And I get done pitching, and he shakes his head. He gives me a tisk-tisk. He goes, Michael. You're crazy. Batman will never be successful as a movie because our movie, Annie, didn't do well. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, are you talking about that little redheaded girl from Broadway, the one who sings that song tomorrow? He said, yes. I said, well, what does that have to do with Batman? And he said, oh, come on. They're both out of the funny pages. <laughs> that was my rejection of Columbia. Okay. That's so ridiculous, though, because at that time, I guess in the 70s, Flash Gordon had come out, and that was a story that originated in the so-called funny pages. And, uh, and and in terms of the darkness, Empire Strikes Back was a pretty dark movie for, for little kids. Yeah, well, this... You know, our hero got his hand cut off. Which is true. They had in their minds really a, a difference, I think, between comic strips and comic books. Comic strips like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, I think, had respectability that comic books never had in their eyes. Thanks again to Dr. Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent. Um, so I think there was a difference there. I see. So, so you, um, you know, finally, 10 years later, uh, the movie comes out and you've been involved in every Batman ever since. And you've, you've tried many other projects. I forget. Did you produce uh, Darkman? No, no, that was, that was uh, Sam Raimi's Sam project. Amy. Okay, I didn't know if you were involved at all or not in that. No, I was not. Because that was a very pretty dark superhero movie. I thought that was a very good uh, superhero movie at the time. That was Sam's version of The Shadow because he wasn't able to get hold of the rights to The Shadow. Yeah, and, um, and you had worked on The Shadow when you were at DC. I did. Uh, my first professional comics uh, scripts were The Shadow, number nine and number 11, um, which I was very proud of. And it was... Um, Shadow number nine, that script that got me the gig to write detective comics. 
I mean, if somebody right now wanted to buy the rights to some character or some story that they that they loved, what would they do? I feel like it's now just big industry. Even, yeah, even it, like there's no real indie scene even. No, I, th- I think it's pretty much impossible now. Uh, I think the value of all of these IP, the value of a library, the, the fact that content is king, no matter how much the technology, no matter how much the delivery systems change, um, it's put new valuations on these things that were considered worthless. Um, you know, when I went back to DC and said, I want to buy the rights to Swamp Thing, it, I almost got laughed at at the uh, office. It was DC Comics publishes something stupid sounding like Swamp Thing. Are you kidding me? Ugh, this is worthless. I said, you're right. It is worthless. Give it to me for free. And I'll, I promise to spend my own money to develop it. So they gave it to me for free. That's amazing. And, you know, it, it was uh, a genius choice by you because Swamp Thing was kind of like the training grounds for Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, all, all of these great comic book uh, writers from England who sort of got introduced into the U.S. through Swamp Thing. And as a result of my Swamp Thing contract, whereby I owned the rights to any characters and stories in the pages of Swamp Thing comics, I became the owner of Constantine. Yeah, right. With uh, 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 Johnny Depp was played, Constant, uh, you know, I would say it was probably Keanu Reeves. Oh, Keanu Reeves. Sorry. <laughs> I'm ashamed of myself since I saw the movie. So I'm getting older. I'm, I'm going, having early onset dementia. That's why. See, that's, that's what happens. So, uh, but that was a, did you ever play around? I know you played around with American Freak on, from Vertigo. Did you ever think about Sandman? Uh, Sandman was not in my purview. Um, and DC was always, there were a couple of properties they always were saving. One was Blackhawk. Because, you know, one day, a zillion years ago, Steven Spielberg mentioned he was a fan of it, was interested in Blackhawk. So that was off the market perpetually, just in case the day might ever come again when Steven Spielberg might say, I'm, yeah, I'm still interested in Blackhawk. Uh, I believe he's now developing Blackhawk. Um, but Sandman was another one that was off the grid and being kept for something special some point in time. And... Um, Um, But I was very, very pleased with Constantine. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because 
side by side with the business summit was the Norway chess summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class, so I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I was just talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I would say since the late 80s, early 90s, comic books themselves also have evolved. You see things like you know, Mouse winning the Pulitzer Prize, the first graphic novel to win the, the Pulitzer Prize. You have companies like Fantagraphics with all their adult-themed uh, comic book stories. Not like porn comic book stories, but like more like, oh, somebody in their 20s dealing with problems and relationships, let's make a comic book about it. How would that fit into your, let's say, if you were to make a comic book course now, it seems like these are very strong themes in comic books now. 
Well, they definitely are, you know, and, and there were a couple of um, uh, clear breakpoints that made a big difference. For example, on my personal journey, um, let's call it seventh grade, um, I was beginning to lose interest in comic books. I thought I was outgrowing them. Um, but so I was discovering girls and comic books were beginning to wane in my eyes. And then I read X-Men one and that just pulled me back into the whole thing because I felt comic books were now growing up with me. The, the characterizations, the stories, the graphic storytelling was becoming more sophisticated. And then graphic novels began. Um, I credit Will Eisner and a contract with God. And all of a sudden you would see people make the mistake. They think that comic books are synonymous with superheroes and they're not at all. And you walk into a Barnes and Noble, if they still are, and anything you find in there, you can find in comic books and graphic novels today, humor, adventure, science fiction, horror, romance, whatever it might be. Um, people don't realize Road to Perdition, the 300, a history of violence, American splendor, were all based on comics. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was a seismic shift. So yes, you know, if you're talking about where we are today, that's an integral part of what it's all about. I started out comic books were simply aimed at eight to 12 year old boys. End of story. And to, to be now, to see the evolution of it and to see adults reading it worldwide, um, that's, in, that's incredible to see. I mean, are you still picking up issues of your favorite comics and reading them for fun? Yeah, I am. Um, I, I have to say lately I've been more heavy on reprints, but I do pick up the stuff today. I'm, of a, I'm old school. Okay. I admit I'm old school. As a result, there's a couple of differences between me, fanboy Michael and fanboys of today. Number one, I grew up, I loved comic books. I read and collected everything. I loved Marvel. I loved DC. I loved Archie and ACG and Dell and Charlton Comics. I got everything. And it's alien to me now to hear factions where people are going, oh, I love DC and I hate Marvel. I love Marvel and I hate DC. It just, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. The other thing that I have a problem with, James, is that in my era of growing up, in my era of writing comics, it was called comic books. It was 50% comic, 50% books. It was a true partnership between a writer and an artist. Now today, it seems in many cases, many cases, that the writing has been abdicated to the artist. And when I spend four bucks or five bucks for a comic book, and there's only 20 words on a page, and I'm done with it in 63 seconds, I'm frustrated. I prefer a little bit more meat with my potatoes. Do you think that started with like Todd McFarlane spinning off with Spawn and, 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 and the emphasis, because he was an artist, so the emphasis became a lot more on the art and the kind of action of the art and, and so on without really the character development. That's a real viable theory. I have not spent the time to kind of pinpoint when the shift began, but it's, it's certainly in play now. And, um, and I understand that the attention span of audiences today, it does not equate to the attention span when I was a kid. It was different times and we had far fewer options for entertainment uh, at the same time. And reading was a big part of our lives. 
So I understand there's been a shift. I understand and I recognize and accept the fact that I'm an old fart now and that's okay. I can live with that. Um, but there, there is that shift and that's one of the things. So I, I kind of search for comic books that have a few more words and depth of story in them. And hap happily got guys like Snyder and King, um, you know, who really deliver exceptional work. And I mean, there's a lot of writers who are doing that. Um, I'm just a little bit more picky these days. You know, you say you're an old guy, but at the same time, when you do as a career, the things that you've loved as a child, I think it keeps a certain playfulness in, in the person. It keeps a certain youth in the person. So, oh my God, yes. I agree. I mean, you get to you get to look back at all of these things. Like, I mean, did you ever, ever imagine when you were a kid you would be hanging out with Bob Kane, the you know original Batman guy, uh, uh, or or you would, I don't know, be writing stories for the the Shadow and so on, and and then making a Batman movie? Of course not. So it's fun. It is. You fun. Talk about passion in your book. People people ask me today. They said, "Well, what exactly is your job?" And I said, oh, okay. Um, every morning I get to report to a sandbox and I play with my favorite toys. That's what I do for a living. Yeah. And, and you, you talk about passion a lot in the book. And I think you even thinking that it was a viable concept that you could go and buy the rights to Batman for movies. First off, the seventies weren't a time where everybody was thinking in terms of business and how can I put this deal together like that it, by itself a comic book guy from Indiana University working at DC wouldn't automatically think oh I need to buy the rights to the Batman movie and make a valuable franchise out of this and by the way also everyone is telling me I shouldn't do it I should go back to law school or whatever and but like how did you even figure out how to put together like oh I need this guy Ben and I need to ignore all the naysayers, including the CEO of DC who are trying to talk me out of this. Like what, I don't know if you could define it, but what kept you going? Cause I think that's inspiring. Okay. It comes down to my parents, my real life superheroes. My parents sacrificed everything for my brother and me. I did not come from money. My father was a stonemason and my mom was a bookkeeper in New Jersey. I couldn't buy my way into Hollywood. I didn't know anyone in Hollywood. I had no relatives in Hollywood. So what do you do when you're dreaming big and you've got this passion coursing through your veins that's burning and you can feel the burn? I realized the first thing I needed to do was get up off the damn couch and that if I wasn't proactive on my own, nothing was going to happen. I realized early on in many cases I had nothing to lose. So I was willing to take calculated risks and roll the dice and be daring about what I wanted to do. My father loved what he did. He was an old world artist. He was a craftsman. The fireplaces and homes he built with brick and stone were amazing. He worked six days a week from the time he was 16 till he was 80 and got up every morning with a big smile on his face, looking forward to getting to work. When you grow up in a house like that, how can you not want that for yourself? I just had to figure out what my bricks and stones were. And early on, I discovered my passion. It was comic books. It was superheroes. And I love movies, TV, and cartoons. So that was, that was that. It was about being taught to follow your passions. And my mother taught us, yes, do that, but understand it comes with a price and it could be a high price to pay. So what you need is perseverance and commitment. And my mom brought my brother Paul and I up that once you make a commitment, you must honor it. And that might cause you pain, 
but you have an obligation. It's a matter of integrity where you honor your commitments. And um, it was my mother's training that allowed me to find the ways to endure for that 10 year human endurance contest from the time I bought the rights to Batman till we finally got the first movie made in 89 and live with nothing but rejection for year after year after year, not knowing where my next dollar was coming from, how I was going to pay my bills the next week. Um, so you could have been like this homeless guy, but who owned the, the Batman movie rights? Um, yeah, I mean, look, look at Bill Finger. I mean, look at Bill Finger. Bill, um, nobody, nobody knew he was a co-creator of Batman. He was a non-entity virtu virtually. Bob Kane took all the glory, all the credit, and all the money. And Bill died an alcoholic, penniless, in 1974. And um, so I, I saw it happen. I mean, I know what you're talking about here. And that's why I went to law school, because I promised my parents, my wife, and my wife's parents that I would have something to fall back on if everything fell apart and my dreams died. So you had and a plan B. I had a plan B. And my God in life, you need a plan B, a C, and a D if you can, because the twists and turns of life on this journey are unbelievable, and you have to be prepared for it. How would you measure, like, I, I understand the point about commitment, and I understand the point about, of course, about passion, but what if it just wasn't meant to be? Like, how would you know with anything when to give up? The day came when um, I was going to do, to get me to Batman, I was looking to do any other production I could mount. And I sold CBS and Lorimar on a 100% historically accurate miniseries based on the story of the Alamo. And we were getting close to production. We had a great script, great director. And simultaneously on the same day, the head of Lorimar left the company and the head of programming at CBS was gone. And then they said, we're freezing everything for the next couple of weeks till the new management comes in. The new management comes in, they kill all the projects of the old management. I had already cleared my schedule for the next year to go down to Brackettville, Texas to produce this thing. I had no prospects left. I was told my producer fee at that moment was in a stamped envelope in an outbox. I never got it and I had already started to spend it. My back was completely against the wall, no money. The wisest man I ever met, my father-in-law, Dr. Morris Osher, who founded the Cincinnati Eye Institute, flew out to New Jersey. He sat me down with my dad and said, and they both said, listen, the measure of a person's success is not by what he has achieved, but by how hard he has tried. They said, you have tried your hardest. You've put everything into it. But now this is why you went to law school. You need to be the lawyer and support your family. And I said, I understand that. I accept that. It's just so frustrating because I know I'm so close. I have this animated series and this other thing that could get me to Batman. And, and my father-in-law said, Michael, how long before you have, he says, and I, I think about it because I want this to be accurate. How long before you have in your hands, not a deal, not a contract, a check for six figures on one of these projects? I thought about it. I said, five months. And my father-in-law said, okay. I'm going to pay all your bills for the next five months. At 6 p.m., five months from today, if you don't have that check in your hand, you say, okay, I gave it my all, and you go be a lawyer. I said, thank you very much. I accept. I, 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 I was so happy. So, look, I was already working 16 hours a, a day, so now I'm working 20 hours a day. 
Um, and my first animated series that I created, which was called Dinosaurs, Dinosaurs from Outer Space, it had been progressing. What I didn't realize is that Andy Hayward, the head of Deke, the animation studio, and some of my other friends who were involved in this, they knew of my predicament. And as we were coming down the stretch, they actually held up delivery of the con final contracts and my check for a couple of days. And on the last day of the five months, sometime between noon and 3 p.m., a FedEx truck pulls up, signed contracts, check for six figures. I paid my father-in-law back and that gave me the money I needed to get to Batman. So sometimes, James, you just need a guardian angel. Otherwise, I would have been toast. Right, but there's also the saying, you know, you create your own luck and you did that. It's a combination of, of the passion and there's that cliche saying, you're, you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. So your parents, your father-in-law, you know, these Andy Hayward. By the way, is that Andy Hayward? It sounds familiar. Does he do genius brands? Those yeah. Con okay. Yeah, yeah I've, I've met with him. I had breakfast with him a couple of years ago. I'm now uh, working with Andy on a big, big uh, Stan Lee project uh, we'll be telling you about pretty soon. Is he still doing the Warren Buffett cartoon? He was doing a Warren Buffett cartoon back then. That's one of the things, yeah. He's okay. got a lot of great stuff in the works. Okay, great. Uh, good for him. So, so yeah, I think this idea that pursuing your passion, I feel like there's two times to do it. There's every time to do it, but you're either in your twenties when you have, you don't have anything to risk or you're like in your fifties where you're kind of on the other side of that, or hopefully, and, uh, and then thirties, forties become bogged down with, with mortgage and responsibilities and kid raising and all that kind of stuff. But what if someone is in their thirties or forties and wants to, pursue a dream that they loved as a child, what would you suggest? Number one, this is the hard part. Get out of your comfort zone. The hardest damn thing to do. And then you got to be like Batman. Then you got to reinvent yourself. And whether you reinvent yourself as a pow zap wham guy with a pot belly or as a dark maniacal guy or as a Lego guy or as uh, any of the iterations that you've seen in movies, TV, and animation, you've got to periodically reinvent yourself. Everything changes, tech changes, employment situations change. Um, my God, you know, if, if there's anything COVID has, has proven in the last two years is that the only thing constant in our lives is change. So you've got to be prepared to change also. And that means making calculated risks from time to time when the dice are 51, 49 in your favor. And you got to be a little bit bold to do that. And it's very, very hard. I've met, I've done business conferences with execs 40 and up who just lost their jobs. Hmm. Um, and it's like, how the hell am I going to find another great job when I'm 50 years old? Who's going to hire me to, at, at, at this point? And it becomes reinvention because the world is changing and they need people like you, maybe in different capacities, in different ways you hadn't thought of before. But again, it comes down to getting up off the couch and, and, and being proactive. You, you can't just raise a white flag. If there's anything I learned, James, I, th I thought delusionally that the movie industry was gonna be such that I, it was gonna be a war. Every day I was gonna go out and fight a battle for my projects and it isn't, it's a siege. And we've all got to dig a foxhole and put a helmet on and hunker down for the siege. And as I always say, the most important decision you make is who you allow in that foxhole with you to watch your back. But that's what it is. Life is a siege. Um, 
embrace it. Don't fear it. Embrace it. And uh, and let me ask you, like, in terms of, uh, I agree about the getting out of the comfort zone, but let's say someone's just been working at a company for 20 years. And like you say, then they're laid off. How do they even start to practice or think about getting out of their comfort zone? Like what, what is there some way they can even safely practice that? Well, I think it's a matter of um, you, you've got to make it your age of exploration. There's a whole world out there that we all quickly lose touch with because it's changing so fast. Um, when my kids moved out, it was goodbye to my nexus to music, to fashion, to, 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 to like everything around me. I mean, it was like it was all evaporating. To this day, I can't turn on or change the channel of my television set unless my five-year-old granddaughter's nearby. Um, that's that's how everything goes. So you've got to explore. You got to find out from the podcasts, from the websites, uh, from speaking to younger people um, what the hell is going on, and how do I hitch my wagon to it and stay in touch and stay in tune? That's your obligation. Your job is to get a new job. Your job is to figure this out. And if you're in between jobs, then you spend your eight or ten hours a day doing this kind of exploration so you can figure figure it out and in doing the exploration you will find your own obi-wan kenobis and your own yodas who will point the way and help you get the right training or outlook that you need it's there but you gotta you it's up to you to find it and and you know i guess when someone's let's say 45 years old just lost their job they're really pessimistic in addition to all that, is there a, how how would you recommend they kind of move from pessimism to at least a little bit more optimism so they can get off that couch? Wow, I know I'm putting a lot on you. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough thing. So I'm going to share with you something Ben Melnicker taught me. Ben said, when you're depressed, when you're down, when something traumatically bad has happened in your life, whether it's the loss of a job or an opportunity or a person. When, when things are going bad, you have to say, this is the greatest thing that could have happened to me because, and then fill in the blank. I love that. And he said, I guarantee it will work every single time. Now, he first sprung this on me after we had our last rejection from the studios on Batman. And I'm sitting on this bench on the studio lot, my head between my legs. I was, I was in a funk. And Ben said, now say it. Now say it, I said, all right, this is the greatest thing that could have happened to me because now we're free of that old fashioned studio thinking and we're gonna find younger people who understand comic books more and we're gonna find foreign companies that are gonna get this more and we're gonna get the kind of Batman that we really want. Ben said, you got it. So now let's redouble our efforts forget about the studios and we're going to blaze a new path. Let's go. And we got up off that park. He got me up off that park bench and we, and we journeyed into movie history from there. When's the last time you had to use that phrase? This is the best thing that ever happened to me because. Um, the last time I remember using it was when Batman and Robin and Catwoman came out. Uh. And I was at the lowest point of my career. I was despondent and upset. And Ben sat me down. He goes, okay, it's time. And I looked at him. I said, I can't do it this time. He says, yes, you can. <sighs> okay. This is the greatest thing that could have happened to me because, 
people are going to get bit on the butt as a result of this. And as a result, the next time we're going to get the Batman that we want, the dark and serious Batman again. Yeah, because right after that, if I'm remembering correctly, is the Christopher Nolan movies. Absolutely. And now I look back in retrospect and I said it was worth going through those experiences in order to get to Chris Nolan. That really reinvigorated that, that whole, your whole franchise. Absolutely. And he came at it 180 degrees differently than Tim did with the same intent uh, about the darkness and dignity to Batman. But he wasn't going to build Gotham City on five square city blocks of Pinewood Studios. He was going to try to convince the world that Gotham City was real and needed to do it with a real city. And by Chris picking Chicago, which you take two iconic buildings out of the skyline and most people around the world don't know that it's Chicago. Um, he made people believe in Gotham City as a real city. Um, with Christian Bale, he made them believe that Bruce Wayne could be a real young man today with post-traumatic stress syndrome on this lost horizon journey of life. Uh, he made them believe the Joker in, in what now post 9-11 had become a, a gray world of order versus chaos. He, he made us believe the Joker could be real today, could be a modern day terrorist. And through a perfor the performance of a lifetime by Heath Ledger uh, with Chris, um, he pulled it off. And then he had to try to convince the whole world that all this crazy tech was real. And how did he do it? He hired Morgan Freeman to tell us it was real. And if Morgan Freeman says it's true, by God, it's true. Uh, I mean, it literally was, by God, it's amazing. You walk out of a Christopher Nolan Batman movie, and for the first time, you could sincerely say, not just this is a great comic book movie, you could say this is a great film. And it just elevated the whole thing. Yeah, and, that, and I think that really led to then the movie, The Joker, which was an unbelievable movie. Like that was just so beautiful to me. I, I, I saw it like three or four times. Todd Phillips is another genius. Um, and that was Todd's vision. And to me, cinema is at its best when it performs as a mirror of our society and forcibly holds a mirror up, warts and all. And when you see reflected in the Joker, the commentary on our times where we've turned our backs as a society on mental health issues, which are tied to gun violence, where we have lost our civility and people talk at each other instead of with each other. And there are consequences for all of this. Um, that was absolutely brilliant. And the fact that it's comic book superhero, comic book villain movies that have such dramatic and important thematic heft to them um, is amazing. It's just amazing. And Matt Reeves has done it again in The Batman. Um, you know, a lot of people tell me, thinking back on the Dark Knight trilogy, the most impactful scene they ever saw was the scene where people are on two different ships and they have a device. And if they press a button, they could blow up the other ship and save themselves, or they can choose not to do that. And poses the moral dilemma, you know, what happens when you have a moral choice to make and it's between bad and worse. And I can't tell you how many people tell me that in the darkness of the theaters, they sat there and came to terms with what they would do in that situation. My God, for a comic book movie to deliver on that level, is, is incredible. And that shows you how far we've come. And now, you know, we're in this world with, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Apple, like there's nonstop streaming services as well as the usual networks. Are things 
easier now to get made, harder to get made? I mean, there's more time slots open. There's more uh, opportunities, it would seem. Sure, there's more opportunities, plenty more opportunities than ever before. But again, everything good comes with a price. So um, recently I got, you know, they always send me the DVDs or the digital downloads for the Emmy Awards. And I used to get a stack like this in a sh and I put it in a shelf in my kitchen and we would watch them one at a time. Now it's that shelf, this shelf, this shelf, this shelf. And I call it my kids. And among the four of us, we still don't know over 50% of any of these titles. There is so much clutter in the marketplace today, clutter, because this it's, it's an appetite that's 24 seven and is not going away for programming, for entertainment, for content. So what separates that out? There's really two things. One is a branded franchise, a brand name, and the other is star power. And, you know, typically those are the qualities that make something stand out. Occasionally you get something that is just so incredible high quality, like Queen's Gambit, that word just spreads around um, as fast as could be. But, but that's hard to do. So yeah, the times are changing. Everything is changing. But I tell you, it doesn't matter how the tech changes. Content is king and always will be. Right, because you could easily predict that, oh, with the rise of YouTube, shorter form content is going to rule the day. And to some extent it has, but then you see, you know, the Batman do 250 million this, this past weekend, and it, that's here to stay. So yeah, it's not going um, anywhere. Yeah, so it, isn't it amazing that you can't just generally, stereotypically categorize people as saying, oh, you like two, three minute stuff because you're young. Oh, you like three hour stuff because you're old. If it's a great story with great characters, it crosses all lines and people love that. I don't care where you're from, what God you worship, um, or how old you are, it works across the board. And it's really true. You know, when every year I go back to Indiana University's media school and I teach two intensive courses for three weeks, experiential learning from Hollywood. And I open up my class every single year the same way. I say there are 10 rules to making a successful motion picture. And all my students take out their devices, you know. I go, number one, story. Number two, story. Number three, story. Number four, story. Five, story. Six, story. Seven, character. Eight, character. Nine, character. And 10, story. And that's the bottom line for me. And for you, what's a story? Because... The, the great thing always about superhero characters and comic books is that they're so classically the Joseph Campbell arc of the hero. I mean, he claims he looked at all the classic literature, blah, blah, blah. I really just think he looked at Superman and came up with the arc of the hero. But, uh, but for you, what's, what's a story? What's, what does it look like? It looks like a beginning, a middle, and an end. It looks like a character who you can become vested in, who you care about and want to follow on his or her journey. It's a story in which a character transforms in some way, shape, or form um, in, an arc, in what we call an arc. Um, it's a story that is thematically important or reflects um, our life, which can still be told in a comedy. It doesn't have to be a drama in order to achieve that. And then it, it, this is a visual medium, so it needs to be presented clearly and, styled, and stylishly. And that to me, in a nutshell, is what it's about. Huh. 
And, uh, you know, you've mentioned you got to find your Obi-Wan Kenobis, your Yodas. Have you ever gotten involved with the or tried to get involved with the Star Wars franchise? It seemed like that would be perfect for you. Well, I, here's a story I recap my book. Um, many, 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 many years ago, um, I was approached by uh, one of my mentors, Stan Weston. Uh, Stan, oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about Stan Weston. He's yeah. great. His story is amazing. He, he's incredible. He was incredible. He was my mentor in the field of animation. Helped me a lot to understand it, um, get my get my footing in it. Um, Stan was the architect of the Star Wars merchandising program. He was the guy, and um, he also owned GI Joe. Um, he that was his original thing was GI Joe, right? And he the sold it to Hasbro thing. for fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, whole... when it was the dolls. Yeah, yeah. Um, he did uh, Thundercats and Silverhawks. Um, he has two boys who have done great for themselves in the industry, Brad and Steve. Um, Stan was amazing. He came to me one day with two other guys. One guy was 100 years old. His name was George Abbott, a legend of Broadway, one of the great all-time directors of hit Broadway shows that you've, you've heard about your whole life long, and another guy who was a financial businessman. And they said, Michael, you know, we love what you've done with Batman and your understanding of uh, pop culture and these things. We just concluded a deal. We've acquired the rights to the Broadway play of Star Wars. And we kind of don't know exactly what to do with it. And we were hoping maybe you could come aboard and write the book for the play. Uh, I said, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I wound up writing two drafts of the book of the play. And we sat down, they were very pleased with the second draft. And I said, okay, now here's the blueprint for what you need to do to make this work. I said, number one, we got to rip out all the seats of the biggest Broadway theater. And we got to put in seats that move and shake. We have to install lasers in the theater. And here's how we're going to do the opening where you see the bottom of the giant spaceship passing overhead and how we're going to project holographically the... And they go, stop. I go, and, and by the way, guys, why don't you, instead of doing it on Broadway, you should get like a 3,000 seat um, stadium uh, theater in Las Vegas. They said, hold on. They said, you don't understand Broadway, son. And whenever anyone calls me son, I always know I'm in trouble. They said, this is about white haired people from the suburbs and in the city who are going to come to this musical. And I said, no, you guys don't understand. You've got something new and different here. You're going to have fans coming to this. You're going to have people flying in from other countries to go to see this thing. This is a whole new ball game for you guys. They did not accept that. And they said, now the music. I said, only two people can do the music. It's either got to be Elton John or Paul McCartney. And they said, well, no, um, we already have somebody we want to do the music, Jimmy Webb. I said, well, I love his work up, up and away. By the time I get to Phoenix, you know, fabulous. I said, but not for Star Wars, not now. You got to go big. And, you got, and they told me I was nuts. And that was the end of my association with the Star Wars Broadway musical, which didn't get made. <laughs> well, that's that's too bad. So, so look, I want to just geek out a little bit and ask you about my favorite DC and Marvel characters and why no one's ever done anything with them. Okay. Uh, if that's okay. 
Legion of Superheroes. I always love that comic book. Always love that comic book. There's no reason that I can possibly give you as to why that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and even like, even the Legion of Substitute Heroes, who were not as good, they were not good enough to be in the Legion of Superheroes. So that's the movie I would rather make. <laughs> like I remember, there's one Psycho Kid where he could use psychic powers to do just about anything, but every time he did so, he lost a year of his life. So he couldn't be in the full group. He had to be in the substitute group. Yeah, I liked Stone Boy. He could turn to stone. Well, there's a guy you want to have in a fight with you, right? Um, yeah. Chlorophyll kid who could turn green. I mean, yeah. give me three pizzas and I'll do the same thing. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it was very funny stuff. And then in, in DC also, I loved um, The Creeper. Remember The Creeper? Uh, I'm a Steve Ditko fanatic. I have saved all my Spider-Man and Doctor Strange Ditko runs. Um, love the man's art and everything he did. As a matter of fact, his history, I was the first writer after Steve Ditko of the question. Um, I wrote the first thing after Ditko left the strip and Alex Toth was the artist and he's legend in the business. Alex taught me more about graphic storytelling than anyone has ever taught me. And that, that was a magnificent experience. So I'm totally, totally a Ditko guy, uh, creeper. Yet he's turned up in animation here and there. Oh, really? Um, okay, I don't. Yeah, there, I don't, there have been little, little spots that turned up. I'm, I'm thinking maybe Batman, Brave and Bold. I'm trying to remember which ones it was, but you know, he certainly. I mean, if the Joker could have his own movie, there's no reason the Creeper can't make his mark somewhere. Yeah, and on the Marvel side, Doctor Strange was always my favorite. Of course, they've made. After after a 20-year wait, they finally started making movies uh, with him in it. But I was always curious about, I thought this was the real Guardians of the Universe, where you had like the Collector and the Grandmaster, like these kind of universe-sized characters that had lived forever that were kind of playing games with the whole, whole universe. And I don't know whatever happened to them. Um, I will say this. I hate cookie-cutter movies. I think if there's anything that's going to undermine what we've all built here on the Marvel side, the DC side, the independent side, it's if too many cookie cutter movies oversaturate the marketplace. That's why I love Deadpool and I loved Guardians of the Galaxy because it was non-traditional. It was out of the box. It was yeah. creative. And I love what they did with it. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of brings me back to a conversation I had with Stan Lee over lunch one day at Nate Nell's in Beverly Hills. And Stan was shaking his head. He goes, Michael, he goes, you're not going to believe this. Disney is going to spend like $200 million and make a movie out of Ant-Man. And Stan sits back. He goes, it's the one superhero I could never make a success of no matter what I did. He said, Michael, Jack and I did The Man in the Ant Hill." didn't sell particularly well, but we got a bunch of letters. So we said, all right, let's see if we can make this work. So I put him in a costume called the Ant-Man. Didn't sell. So we introduced a partner, the Wasp. Ant-Man and the Wasp didn't sell. Then I thought, okay, maybe fans don't like uh, heroes who shrink. I'll make them grow. He said, I changed him to Giant Man. Didn't sell. We tried the new Giant Man. Didn't sell. I turned him into Goliath. It didn't sell. We did Black Goliath. It didn't sell. Then I said, okay, I got the wrong insect. I turned him into yellow jacket. It didn't sell. He goes, so now they're going to spend $200 million. Maybe they'll figure out a way to make it work. And they did. Yeah. Paul Rudd was great. Paul, Paul Rudd stole my heart in that movie. I went in wanting to hate that movie because of everything Stan said. 
And it just absolutely won my heart. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. But yeah, there was back in the in the seventies Marvels, there was all these characters that were not based on Earth, but they were like the Watcher, sort of from older civilizations and uh, somehow spanned the whole universe. And they just sort of like, I guess the Watcher sort of survived a bit, but these other ones didn't. Yeah, but look, if they could do the Eternals, there, there there's Hope Springs Eternals, right? Yeah. <laughs> did they ever do the Inhumans? They did for TV and it didn't, okay. work. didn't work. Yeah, the Marvel Netflix relationship somehow. I don't know what happened, but I thought I thought the Daredevil show was pretty good. Love uh, Daredevil. Memphis, Jessica Jones, they were all like pretty good. Love so, Daredevil. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Love, I've loved everything you've done in the business and all the Batmans and everything else. And of course, we've talked about Shazam. I can't wait for the sequel for that. And your book, Batman's Batman. And I just want to make sure I'm getting it. I always forget titles. Uh, there's Batman's Batman, which just came out. And it's your memoir of your experiences in Hollywood, plus your experiences growing up and what really motivated you in life. And then there's this other book, your earlier book, The Boy Who Loved Batman. Correct. Who... That I again, I like I said, that was like a love story to the comic book industry, the 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 literature, the art, and, and so on, and your experiences growing up around comic books. And it's just both very beautiful books and yeah. inspiring. Uh and thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. I so appreciate it, James. And as Stan Lee used to tell me, Michael, make sure you get the full plugs in whenever you have an opportunity. So I'll just add that the audiobook version of Batman's Batman is available now. And the one for The Boy Who Loved Batman will be available in May, both narrated by yours truly. So I can lull you to sleep with my stories. Uh, are they, are, is it exactly word for word or did you add some stories to the to the audiobook. They're exactly word for word. And my inspiration was my hero from when I was a kid, a guy named Gene Shepard, who had yeah. a radio show nightly in New York City. And also his uh, his memoir was made into a movie called A Christmas Story, which he narrated, which was uh, quite wonderful. Thanks again, Michael. And I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Talk to you again soon, I hope. 